0: The next lecture is, uh, is Dr. Morazzo. is going to be talking to us about the new STD treatment guidelines that were updated last year and what we need to know. She is a professor at the University of Washington.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Laura. I really want to thank the organizers for once again inviting me to speak to this really wonderful and experienced group of providers who are carrying on the amazing legacy of Ryan White. So always really great to be here. And I'm here to talk about the amazing, different kind of amazing job our patients are doing uh, in the HIV care setting, sustaining the resurgence of several very interesting STDs. So for those of you who've been in the field for a long time, um, you'll remember the old days when we used to see a lot of these infections. Well, they're back. We've actually seen over a 200% increase in syphilis um, in Seattle King County with a marked increase in neuroinvasive disease. So. I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing topic of conversation. Um, I don't have time to get to everything in the 30 minutes that I've allotted here, so do save your questions. Also, if you want to talk about things in a little bit more detail, please come to the workshop because I've left that really pretty unstructured so we can talk about some challenging cases which people often contact me about. Okay, so what I'm going to talk about here today are routine screening issues. A lot of questions about what tests I should use, which sites I should screen at, and how often I should do it. Really want to talk about syphilis serology because there are big changes in how this is now being done. Particularly talk about screening at the rectal and the pharyngeal site. Neurosyphilis evaluation. When do you do a lumbar puncture, and how is that changing uh, in terms of the new CDC treatment guidelines? What's going to happen with treating gonorrhea as antimicrobial resistance continues to escalate, and that is really taking off like wildfire, as I'll talk about. And then some changes in the treatment of trichomoniasis, which many people call the neglected STD, and uh, we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. So um, this is a poster from the Seattle King County uh, effort to highlight the fact that syphilis is on the rise, the incidence is increasing. And they're uh, fairly aggressive, I think, posters that are intended to get your attention and uh, to make you think about what's really going on, particularly uh, men who have sex with men who are sustaining by far the largest burden of the uh, increase in syphilis. So let's start off with a case to see what you're thinking about this. And this is a, actually, can I go back to the previous slide? I'm not ready for the ARS because I wanted to read uh, the thank you. I ordered syphilis serology on my patient and instead of getting the usual RPR, I got a treponema pallidum IgG result. It was reactive, help. Now let's go ahead and ask the question, thank you. So this patient on whom you've gotten this result is a 33-year-old man, he's a monogamous with a male partner, what next? Ignore it, it's probably a false positive. Order a serum RPR or VDRL, including a titer, if you can still get it. Order a serum TPPA, um, which I think hopefully many of you are familiar with, or ask for help again because I have no idea what a treponema pallidum IgG is about. I think this music's too mellow for a syphilis case. You really should have, like, Lady Gaga and Walmart disco. Okay. Fantastic. So the majority of you know the correct answer, which is indeed to look at a quantitative, non-specific RPR or VDRL. Some of you want to confirm it with the TPPA, which is another treponemal test. And then some of you, I think very justifiably want to ask for help. When we started doing this test in our clinic, it just showed up one day in the lab reports. It was like there was no warning uh, in our HIV clinic. And so people were like, I'm sorry, but what? So let's talk about what this is. I'm gonna go on to the next slide. And just to sort of set the context, The issue here is that, as I mentioned, we're seeing relentless upward trends in men in terms of early syphilis cases, and these are almost all men who have sex with men, although as time goes on, we are seeing a shift and some trends into heterosexual populations as well. About half, at least in some cases, in some cities are HIV infected, and I think in some areas it's even more, and if you look at the graph at the bottom, what you can see just are the number of cases in 2009 that were reported to CDC of primary and secondary syphilis. Remember primary is the chancre, so it's the genital ulcer. Secondary is the early disseminated form of the disease when you see the rash, when you see some neurologic findings, condyloma lata, oral mucus patches. That's when people are most infectious and have the highest treponemal burden. The reason we like to follow those two forms is that they reflect the most recent trends in the disease because you're seeing people who were recently infected. you a very nice idea of what the active incidence of this infection is and you can basically see that the cases of primary and secondary in men who have sex with men on the right hand side of that graph there are really very high. Um, I think that there has been an anecdotal increase in neurologic presentations. I've seen three cases of blindness associated with syphilitic syphilitic panuveitis in the last six months, a case in clinic of a patient who lost hearing in both ears, about 30%, and actually went undiagnosed for four months because nobody thought to actually do an RPR, and he'd also acquired HIV at the same time. So I think there's no question, and I don't know what this is going to turn out to be, if it's because we're seeing more early disease or we're seeing different bugs. Uh, the serologic tests I'll mention, and then the last thing is there was some hope that azithromycin could be used for treatment of an incubating syphilis, and that's not going to be an option because resistance emerges very quickly, so that's an unfortunate loss. So what the heck are these serologic tests? Sounds like many of you are now familiar with it, but the EIA or the CLIA, depending on what test you get, some of the examples are listed there, are treponemal tests that are FDA-cleared for clinical use, and this is often called reverse sequence syphilis screening, and the reason they call it reverse is because in the old days when you did the RPR and the VDRL, you were using nonspecific antibody tests. They were not based on antibody to the, uh, to the organism itself. The treponemal tests actually are very specific for treponemal pallidum, so now you're using that test first and then going to the nonspecific test to quantify the titer, so it's a little bit different. Why are we shifting here? Because these tests are really automated and very cheap from the laboratory perspective. When you get an RPR or VDRL and you get a titer, somebody actually has to sit there and pipette the material in the various degrees of dilution. Really the occupational hazard is present as well as the labor intensiveness. are classical EIAs. You can do a bunch of them at a time. They're very cheap. They're costly to the lab, but I don't think it's going to turn out to be less costly to us as providers because we're getting a lot of reactive results having to act on them in terms of subsequent testing and then dealing with what do you do with the patient. So I actually think in terms of clinical staff time, this may turn out to be not so cost-saving. Um, so this is basically the story. This is a nice reference uh, there if you do want to read a little bit more about it. What are some of the challenges and limitations? Yes, they're great for the lab, but one problem is just like with the TPPA or the FTA, or for those of you who remember the MHA, the old treponemal test that you use to confirm uh, RPRs and VDRLs, you can't distinguish between active disease and old disease, i.e. treated or untreated. So once you have a treponemal test that's positive, it's positive for life. So if you just happen to get somebody who comes in with a positive EIA, it's possible that they were treated six years ago or eight years ago or that they were untreated and got the disease eight years ago. You just don't know. You can't use it to monitor therapy for the very same reason because it doesn't revert pretty much as far as we know. And you can't titrate it, so you can't follow the quantity. Very importantly, as I'll show you in a second, false positive results may not be inc- uncommon in low prevalence populations. That's pretty much like any diagnostic test, right? The positive predictive value is going to be related to the likelihood that that disease is present in the population. And what's happening here is that because these tests are so cheap and so easy to perform, they are being applied to wide portions of the population. For example, Kaiser is using it now to screen all women for prenatal screening and they are seeing what are turning out to be a very large number of false positives. If you're screening gay men in a city like Seattle where we're seeing this incredible outbreak of syphilis, you want to take a positive result very seriously. And uh, until proven otherwise, you really want to think that it's probably something you should treat or certainly evaluate further very aggressively. I already mentioned that last bullet. So this is an MMWR uh, from the CDC that came out in February. And what they really talk about here, I know you can't read this. I'm going to summarize what it says in the next bullet. But what they really tried to look at with a very large number of tests was of all these tests done in five laboratories in the United States within four years, 2006 to 2010, Uh, When they used the EIA or the CLIA to test the sera and then went on to check the RPR in this case, and then they did a third level of testing, which was the TPPA, the final treponemal test, how many of these really were borne out to be true, if you believe true as either being RPR positive or TPPA positive? And it actually turned out that about half of them were not confirmed by the subsequent testing. Again, the likelihood of their being confirmed by subsequent testing really related to where the testing was done. If you were looking at the sort of prenatal screening people in Kaiser, then you were really very likely to have an unconfirmed test. If you were looking at men who had sex with men who were being seen in some of the HIV HIV care settings, you were considerably more likely to have a true positive test. So what was the upshot of this MMWR and the CDC recommendations? Basically, as most of you chose in the ARS, You do always want to confirm positives with a standard non-treponemal test, and you want to titrate that to guide management. Please don't forget about the prozone phenomenon. Remember the prozone phenomenon is something when your titer is so high that the antibody sucks up all the antigen that the, the laboratory puts in, and you have a false negative titer. So if you have somebody who you think for all the world has secondary syphilis, classic rash, maybe they have uveitis, maybe even neurologic disease, their uh, initial treponemal test is positive, you get the ERPR and you're negative, you should really go back to the lab and say, you know, could this be a and phenomenon? What the lab can do then is dilute the serum out. I've seen this about three times also in the last year where cases have been missed because people just didn't go that extra step. And sometimes you get out to a titer of 1 to 2048, and that's actually where it happens. So remember that. Um, in the case of a positive EIA, um, when the uh, RPR, the VDRL turns out to be negative and you still think you want to keep going, what the CDC recommends is to do a different treponemal test, in this case the TPPA. And that's pretty much what people are doing. Um, and then if you're really down to the bottom there, where you've got this discrepant serology, you have the positive EAA, negative RPR, it's possible that it's either a false positive or it could be early syphilis or previously treated syphilis. So we really don't know, and we're going to have to do more natural history studies, I think, in target settings to really figure out how this serology is going to perform. But for now, I think this is a reasonable approach to use in your clinics. Um, the other issue I think that is really vexing people is the screening for neurosyphilis. Um, and people say, I'm now, I was confused before, um, but now I'm really confused given the new treatment guidelines about when to get an LP in patients with syphilis. So let's go on to the ARS slide, which is next, and I want to see what you all think. And I don't know that there's a right answer here, so feel free to give me your honest opinion. 42-year-old man with a CD4 of 182. His serum RPR is reactive at 1 to 64. His TPPA was positive, or you could reverse it and say EIA was positive, and the RPR was uh, positive. Regardless, he's got a real positive. With a reasonably high titer, he's asymptomatic with a normal neuro exam, and I mean a good neuro exam, not just sort of like, you know, he's walking around in the room without falling down kind of neuro exam. Uh, <clears throat> and I say that is not a compulsive neurology type, really. Uh, no, and, and what I mean is really normal cranial nerve exam in particular. Really have to be sure you do a good cranial nerve exam, including hearing, including uh, visual uh, tests, really look carefully at the eyes, et cetera. No prior history of syphilis, uh, no syphilis testing. Um, Would you perform a lumbar puncture to rule out neurosyphilis? Yes, no, or maybe? All right, this is great. It's really interesting to see how these um, track over time. When I do this question in Seattle, Um, I would say that the yes and no are reversed. That's because we have some very evangelical uh, syphilis specialists who are really excellent and who have done a lot of studies and actually believe that the data really do support performing LP. And that's really where the controversy gets going. So let's take a look at the next slide. In 2006, which was the previous version of the CDC-STD treatment guidelines, this is what they said. Um, in terms of when you should do a lumbar puncture in HIV-infected patients. Obviously, when there were neurologic or ocular ocular symptoms, if they had tertiary disease, which you don't see very often, that would be cardiovascular disease or GAMAs. Um, Serologic treatment failure, um, syphilis with late latent or unknown duration. Late latent means you acquired it more than a year ago. Um, and neurologic symptoms. So really a lot of people fell into this late latent uh, sort of category and would warrant, a, warrant a LP. There was also the quote here that said some specialists recommend CSF examination before treatment of HIV infected persons with early syphilis with follow-up CSF exam conducted after treatment. So basically they were saying that even when you had early disease, early latent, primary or secondary, you should go ahead and LP. And you know that really came from data that said when your CD4 count was low, less than 350, or your VDRL, your RPR was high, basically 1 to 32 or higher was how it was defined, that you clearly had an increased risk of pleocytosis or elevated protein in your CSF, even when you were asymptomatic. And that's really where the Seattle sort of group got into this argument about really thinking that all these folks should be LP'd. So what does it say in 2010? Well, they have backed off extremely quite a lot. There's now a blanket statement that says central nervous system invasion occurs in early syphilis regardless of HIV or neurologic symptoms. What does this look like? Elevated protein and pleocytosis, meaning an elevated number of white blood cells, typically monocytes. And they say the clinical significance of this is unknown. You see it in people with and without HIV in early syphilis. Syphilis is a neurotropic organism. And then they do acknowledge that clinical and CSF consistent with neurosyphilis is associated with an RPR, as I mentioned, at that level or with a CD4 or less than or equal to 350. The problem is if you use these criteria to direct lumbar puncture in most or all HIV-infected patients, you get a lot of negative lumbar punctures, and I think we've learned that very much over the years. So the criteria are probably very sensitive, but they're very nonspecific, meaning that you are going to really subject a lot of folks to LP. So the uh, guidelines also say that unless neurologic symptoms are present, nobody has managed to show that doing the lumbar puncture really is associated with improved clinical outcomes. And that's really the key thing. We don't know if doing a lumbar puncture more in our HIV-infected patients, shunting them into the more aggressive neurotherapy or therapy of neuroinvasive disease really prevents neurologic sequelae in the long term, and there really are no data to support them. There are limited data to support that it doesn't really matter, some, some observational data, And that's really where the guidelines go. So they're really non-directive, and they leave the decision up to provider's discretion. I would say it's very setting-specific. Some people who have neurology colleagues who are very interested in LPing these patients, for example, do tend to get these LPs more frequently. But I would say that the spent pendulum has swung quite a bit the other way. Now, with this increase in neuroinvasive disease that I think we and others in metropolitan areas are seeing, I don't know what I'm going to be saying if I speak to you next year or the year after. So stay tuned syphilis is nothing if not protean and always very, very interesting, very, very challenging. So let's shift a little bit and talk about gonorrhea. The big issue with gonorrhea is ongoing antimicrobial resistance, and we've known about this um, for a long time, um, the most recent chapter being the emergence of really worrisome antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea. So let's start with a quick question. How would you treat a patient with uncomplicated gonorrhea? Let's just say it's somebody who has symptomatic urethritis. Um, An injection of ceftriaxone 250, an injection of ceftriaxone 250 and treatment for chlamydia, that would be doxy or azithro, cifixime orally once, or cifixime orally and treatment for chlamydia. Okay, so everybody, were you studying the treatment guidelines before you came to this session? Okay, so clearly, we don't need to review the appropriate treatment for gonorrhea in the workshop. So that, that is the correct answer. You want to use parenteral therapy. Um, we can't rely on oral cithixine any longer. It's not so much that we can't rely on it for treatment of the urethral infection. Anybody know why we really are moving away from it? I'll make you shut it out. I know it's not a great room for this, but... We can talk about it more in the workshop. It's because of the concern for pharyngeal co-infection. And there are some really nice data to show, especially in populations um, that we see in our HIV care setting, that co-infection at the pharyngeal site is as high as 25%. The problem with treating the pharyngeal site is that it's very, very difficult to eradicate. If you use oral therapy, you maybe get 75%. of a a cure, which is really, really low. If you use parenteral therapy, you're closer to 90%, which is much more acceptable. The rationale for adding the chlamydia therapy is a little bit fuzzy in many people's mind, but really was done to sort of forestall the eventual development of resistance to ceftriaxone and ongoing um, other antibiotics. And that was a very controversial decision. So that's really why you always now want to use parental therapy and you always want to try to provide co-treatment for chlamydia, regardless of the diagnostic test results of chlamydia tests. So if you have a great nucleic acid amplification test, you scream for chlamydia, it's negative, you still want to provide treatment for chlamydia because you're actually augmenting your antibiotic therapy for gonorrhea. People are very confused about that because the last guideline said that you should base the treatment for chlamydia on the results of your excellent NAP tests. So they've reversed themselves completely, and I think that's, that's a little bit tough for people to understand, especially in the absence of data to support it. And there are no data to support that this is going to make a difference, so I, I think that's very clear. We don't have to go through this in detail, but I just want to give you a sense of the very recent timeline of decreased cephalosporin susceptibility in 1999 in Japan. Remember, the Far East is sort of the source of all antibiotic resistance for many of these organisms, and that's because so many antibiotics are sold freely over the counter. So in Thailand, many of you know, have been to Southeast Asia, you can go to the pharmacy and get quinolones, which is really why we saw quinolone resistance. Anything over the counter that spreads to Hawaii first, which often sees the first let's West Coast, and then you see this west to east sort of nice uh, distribution. Um, so I won't go through all this again. I'll just take you down to 2008, 2009, 2007. Actually, in Hong Kong, for treatment failures, clinical treatment failures were, were reported with cetuximab. 2008, 2009. There was an isolate with high MIC to ceftriaxone, two micrograms per mil. That was pretty alarming in Japan. And then you start to see this creep, MIC creep. And for those of you who don't do micro, MICs measure the effect of the antibiotic against the organism. The higher they are, the worse off you are. And this was starting to happen in Australia, Europe, and the U.S. And then just last year, two treatment failures with cefixime in Norway, one a pharyngeal treatment failure in Sweden, and in 2011, actually didn't have time, very recently published, Um, another case, a couple of cases of treatment failure with ceftriaxone in Japan. Um, So where are we? You already knew this. So just to remind you, the CDC treatment guidelines recognize these trends by switching or, or emphasizing that parenteral therapy is preferred. This is a big deal. I mean for HIV clinics it's not that bad because most of us have the ability to do injections, but if you're in a community health center um, in some places where they see a lot of gonorrhea or some STD clinics are okay, actually giving shots routinely is not easy. So that's going to be, I think, a challenge. That's why they did lead the oral option in there. You can use acifixine, but it is clearly not preferred. Um, and then, again, treatment with chlam- for chlamydia, either single-dose of Zithro or a week of doxycycline. Um, so what happens if you can't use ceftriaxone? That does not leave us very comfortable with a lot of options. So here's a 21-year-old man who has urethrogonorrhea. He has a severe reaction to cephalosporins in the past. He had hives. He was wheezing. This was not a little wimpy sort of reaction. How would you treat him? Um, doxy, a week, once, uh, twice daily. Um, azithro, single dose, 2 grams a little bit different than the chlamydia dose, which is one gram. Spectinomycin, some of you may have trained when you remember what spectinomycin was, two grams IM, one dose. Levofloxacin, 500 milligrams daily for seven days, or bite the bullet, desensitize him and treat him with ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM, one dose. Very interested to see what you did here. All right. Very interesting. Okay. So just by a very slim margin, 51% of you wanted to give them a ziffer 2 grams or early one dose, and that is the correct answer. Um, the doxycycline has no or extremely minimal activity against gonorrhea. It used to be a treatment for gonorrhea back in the 50s. Um, but is no longer a possibility. So recognize that that is not a backup option, an important point to take away today. Spectinomycin is no longer available, so we can't get it. That would have been a great option. In fact, that was the treatment uh, recommended for pregnant women with gonorrhea who couldn't tolerate penicillin, and then foxes cef- uh, and let's talk about that, maybe, but increasingly not. And then, yeah, you can desensitize, but I think it would be worth taking the azithromycin route um, first. Because desensitization in this case is, you know, it's not trivial. You can do it. What's the problem with the Zithro? Well, let's talk about that. So, again, there are limited options. I mentioned the point about spectinomycin. Azithromycin, I think, is a very reasonable first choice. However, remember that you do have to treat with two grams, double the dose of the chlamydia, uh, chlamydia dose, and actually it's not a pleasant thing to take. If you've taken it, it does. Two grams almost always makes you throw up, Sometime, or at least be very nauseated. I would often give people the gram, have them sit around a little while and give them the other gram. I do like to make sure they get that second gram in them, though. I don't like to send them away with it, but sometimes you have to do that. The real problem is that resistance to Zithro is increasing, and I'll show some data about that, and treatment failures have occurred. So the window in which we're going to be able to rely on that as a backup is narrowing as we speak. Fluoroquinolones, in the last guidelines, they were there as a backup. Basically, the message was know your local epidemiology. If you're in a place where you see a lot of gonorrhea, particularly in heterosexuals, since MSM, men um, in sex with men are in the forefront of uh, the gonorrhea resistance um, you, you could actually potentially use the quinolones. Now they are not, no longer even really mentioned there is a little line that says if they are your only option you do want to try to obtain a culture if possible prior to treatment so that you can actually document fluoroquinolone sensitivity. I should just ask raise your hands how many people have access to gonorrhea culture anymore? Yeah big problem so we have a bug for which We're losing options, and cultures are going out the window because everybody's moving to NAT, which is great, but really puts us in a bad place in terms of surveillance. So I think you can do it, um, but you do have to be very careful. You certainly want to see people back um, and obtain a test of cure. If you're using a culture three to five days, if you're using NAT, not till three weeks. So I would discourage it. It really is a last resort sort of approach, um, but it is something you can keep in your back pocket. The problem, as I mentioned, with the Zitro is this. This is something that came out uh, right, after I ma- what, right as I was making the slides. On May 13th, there were reports of four cases, or four, several isolates actually, in San Diego that were obtained from the Gonococcal Surveillance Project, which is a project that uh, collects urethral isolates from men in STD clinics, primarily across the U.S., and this was the first report of isolates that evidenced significantly reduced susceptibility to azithro. Not frank resistant, but concerning anyway. And then right after that, literally on May 17th, uh, a letter from Dr. Gail Bullen, who runs the CDC STD division, talking about an isolate from Hawaii from a woman, very concerning, May 17th, um, which had high-level resistance to azithromycin, and, and that's an MIC greater than or equal to 1,024, and that's really serious, clearly not going to respond to 2 grams. More disturbingly, she had no evidence of having acquired this elsewhere, and it appeared to be uh, acquired in Hawaii. She was successfully treated with ceftriaxone and azithro, but the point is that this is the first case in the United States with high-level resistance to azithro, just pointing out that our options are going to continue to be quite limited. So alarming, disturbing, um, just know about it and be ready to ask for help um, if you get into some trouble or you suspect a case of resistant gonorrhea. You really know to call your STD uh, partners or certainly call us or the STD training centers and we can help you out. What about trichomoniasis? It's neglected, so I just wanted to make sure you knew some interesting data. I would treat an HIV-positive woman with vaginal trichomoniasis with metronidazole 2 grams, single oral dose, metronidazole 500 milligrams twice a day for seven days seven days, or I don't see women patients in my practice, so I don't know, and I don't need to know. I hope you don't think that. But, you know, we can all only contain so much information in our brains, so I do respect that tendency. Okay. So let's see, Inf- very interesting. So some of you know this most, these more recent data and many of you may not be familiar with so I'm glad we talked about it. It's always good when you get split ARS responses because it means you chose either the question is good or you really need to sort of talk about the topic. So the actual answer is number two. Um, the treatment guidelines for trick are listed here. For patients in general, recommended regimens are single-dose metronidazole or tinidazole, as many of you uh, noted. The alternative regimen is metronidazole, 500 milligrams twice a day for a week. You can use that in anybody, and particularly if women have bacterial vaginosis that's antric, or you don't know which they have. That's the regimen I would use since it's much better for BV. However, a very nice study by Patty Kissinger's group looked at the response in HIV-positive women to treatment with a single-dose therapy versus a week-long therapy, and basically the cure rate was, actually, I think that should be the treatment failure rate, um, the treatment failure rate was 9, um, let's see, The 17% of the women who got the single, uh, the week-long therapy had, that I think, I'm, uh, basically, let me, I'm like totally spazzing out here with reading it. Let's just say that the treatment's failure was much higher in the single-dose group, and I think it's reversed. It was 17% versus 9% for the week-long, so it was significantly better if the women got longer therapy, and I think that's important. Also remember that vaginal therapy for TRIC is ineffective. metronidazole gel, which I have seen people use, simply does not have enough metronidazole in it, so very important and the other thing that's new in the guidelines is to consider retesting women in three months, and men as well, and basically this is because rates of reinfection are very high and we don't do a very good job testing partners. I should note that there's also a new nucleic acid amplification test, the Aptima test, which we use for gonorrhea and chlamydia, now can be done for trichomonas as well, very interestingly, just FDA approved last month. And actually I forgot that I had put a slide here, so just so you know, For those of you who actually look under the microscope to find trick, don't be discouraged. It's a terrible test. It's probably only 30% sensitive. We used to say it was maybe 60%. But when you compare it to these nucleic acid amplification tests, it really does stink. It's not very good. Um, so if you can, you should be doing at least a culture. There's a rapid diagnostic test that you can use, use called the, the OSOM test, which also works very well. But I think clearly the standard practice is going to evolve to using these NAT tests, and it's really going to be great. You can do it on self-collected vaginal swabs in women. You can do it on urine. And I'm going to wrap up here because I know that I'm almost done. We'll just do one more case. I screen my HIV-infected patients for gonorrhea and the rectum at the rectum and pharynx if indicated by risk history. Yes? No, I test only if they report symptoms. No, I wish I could, but I don't have access to test kits to do it. Oh, very interesting. Okay, an excellent spread. So let's just talk about this. I just want to remind people that, you know, don't look, don't find uh, is like don't ask, don't tell. If you don't look at the rectum and the pharynx, you're going to miss up to 40 to 50 percent of gonococcal and chlamydial infections in people who report, in people who practice those sex involving those sites, as many of our patients do. And this, just take a look at your, your handouts in the interest of time, but it really just reminds people that you do need to look if you are told that people have exposure at those sites. And I do like to always show this cartoon which I think many of, us people, many of us perhaps might not want to know, because it means we do have to look, and then we find, and then we have to act. So I would encourage you to do that, because you are going to miss a lot of infections, and you can't use urine to find pharyngeal or rectal gonorrhea. It's hard to believe. So I'll stop there, because I think Laura's at my side. Just remember, screen a lot. Uh, remember syphilis is on the rise, and be aware that there are some bad gonorrhea strains out there.
0: Thanks. Thank you. So one of the questions that came up yesterday about this was that a lot of people don't seem to have laboratory access to mm-hmm. being able to screen. And right. so what should they do if their local lab is not going to be doing this for them? Sure. So the CDC,
1: so I think that the question is that the nucleic acid amplification tests that I mentioned, particularly the Genprobe Aptima, the BD ProbeTac, there are a few others, are not FDA approved for performance at the rectum and the pharynx. That doesn't mean you can't use it because they have actually been validated by several commercial labs, including LabCorp and Quest, and a number of large public health labs and state labs have validated them. So if you need to do them, you really just need to find out where to send them because they validated that. And there are very good resources on the CDC web, uh STD web page that can help you do that. If you can't find them, get in touch with me. I'd be happy to send you the dear colleague letter and the person you need to talk to at CDC to figure out how to make it happen.
0: So I've asked Dr. Wyatt just to go through with some of the Q&A she had gotten and answer two or three questions quickly, then we'll go to the microphone. Sure, so I, I selfishly picked the questions that I either didn't get to in my talk or that I think are particularly important as a nephrologist. Um, but I do have several questions that are sort of geared towards when to refer to nephrology. Um, I think any, any patient where you think a definitive diagnosis would be helpful or might change management. Um, Any patient with really what you feel like is rapid progression, you're worried every time you see them things seem to be worse. Um, And certainly any patient, even if you know they have diabetic nephropathy, any patient that reaches um, at this point stage four chronic kidney disease, and I guess so that nephrologists are the only ones that can bill for chronic kidney disease, we're creating an even more, um, an enhanced and more confusing staging system. So soon stage 3B, which will be a GFR less than 45, Um, I would probably send those patients as well because there are pretty strong data to support um, getting these patients prepared for end-stage renal disease, talking about dialysis options. If they choose hemodialysis, getting them um, a permanent um, arterial venous or AV fistula um, because of the much decreased risk of infection, Um, and also potentially discussing transplant with with, um, appropriate patients. um, Mike? So Dr. Marazzo, Regarding the <coughs> EIA for syphilis, it, why wouldn't, or can't we encourage the labs to use that as a screening test? And then if it's positive, just to reflexly do the RPR yeah. and titer it out. And that way they could save the money and we could save the time. We, we just send off the syphilis test much like we send off an HIV. They do a lysas, and if positive, they do a Western.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense. Um, I think that the labs have not yet gotten to that level yet. It may turn out that the big big labs that are doing this, like especially Kaiser, uh, will actually come to that. I know that there will be a paper coming out, I think in JID in the next month or two, that Ina Park and her colleagues did using the Kaiser data and really looking, drilling down on all these 160,000 tests to look Look at the predictive value and really go into detail. I think once those data are published, people will really be pushing for that. Because I think the burden right now is just sort of stimulating a lot of activity, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of problems for HIV care settings. It's a a good suggestion. So they will do it automatically? Okay.
0: Bruce? Yeah, I was going to say just but to answer that real quick that our institution does exactly that. Good. Yeah, ours but, hasn't yeah there yet. the problem with that is if you're trying to follow a titer, you always end up getting the treponemal antibody all over again. That's and what I was going to say. Yeah, that's why I think
1: it's it, it is being done in some places, but I wasn't aware it was quite so widespread. And what I what I had seen in the places that does that do do it is that you do get the treponemal test repeated again, which is just asinine. You don't need it. You know it's positive. You just really want the RPR. So so the clinician should have some discretion, I think, to at least know when to order what.
0: So, so, my question actually was for Dr. Wyatt. Um, you mentioned using protein creatinine ratio to screen uh, in, in HIV nephropathy, and then um, microalbuminuria to measure microalbuminuria in diabetics. We have, obviously, we have a lot of people that have both. Can you just sort of explain to me? I, I've heard this explanation many, many times, and I still don't get it the difference between those tests prognostically and and what clinical settings they're most useful diagnostically. Sure. Well, if it makes you feel any better, you're not alone in not understanding (laughs) it. Um, So uh, essentially the urine protein creatinine ratio or a urine albumin to creatinine ratio is based on the idea that most of us excrete about a gram of creatinine a day in our urine. Now that's that's sort of a population mean. That's certainly not true for any given individual. But as a result, if you put the two things, whether it's albumin or protein, and the creatinine in the same units, the units cancel out, and you essentially have created sort of standard units. So you just have a ratio, you just have a number. That number is a reasonable estimate of how many milligrams of protein or albumin you're excreting in a 24-hour period. So that's sort of the idea behind them. Obviously, there are times when it doesn't work particularly well. So somebody who's incredibly big or incredibly small may excrete more or less creatinine in a day. And patients who are in acute renal failure or really rapidly progressive chronic kidney disease, you kind of have to be in steady state for that one gram a day to be true. So um, that's the idea behind a protein-creatinine or albumin-to-creatinine ratio. When you would pick one over the other, Uh, I typically do, and this is a controversial area even in nephrology, but I think for most cases a protein-creatinium ratio is appropriate. It will include the albumin. About half of protein is usually albumin in normal situations um, or or in the setting of sort of regular glomerular disease. Um, there's been some debate about whether looking at the comparison between albumin and creatinine can give you some um, insight into tenofovir toxicity, but there's now a growing body of literature that albuminuria is not unique to glomerular disease, and it may also be an indicator of tubular disease. So at this point, I would do, mo- for most patients, I would just do a routine urinalysis. If you've got a higher-risk patient or a patient with a positive urinalysis, I would probably start with the urine protein creatinine ratio. The only um, real difference there would be in a patient with, with diabetes where the the guidelines suggest doing a microalbuminuria test in a patient even with a negative protein on urinalysis. We're going to have a couple quick questions, quick answers. Um, We're running out of time here. So what do you do with persistent positive RPR when you've had a negative LP, you've treated the patient? Yeah. Uh, So the state
1: really frustrating. Um, Once you've treated the patient, you rule out treatment failure as best you can, and you rule out reinfection, which is the real challenge then you don't need to, and you rule out neurosyphilis, then you don't need to retreat, like, many times. At most, maybe once, but I've seen people retreat it, like, way beyond the pale. So serophosphate occurs in in HIV, and it can be actually fairly high titers. I've seen people with 1 to 8, 1 to 16 who just won't go away, and I think you have to figure it out on a case-by-case basis because reinfection is
0: always a concern. So I've, gotten, I've got a big pile of questions about the use of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, when, when not. Um, I think the first thing to say is that there are several questions about using it in patients with low GFR and proteinuria. Um, although that's certainly a patient population where it's a little bit more challenging and you need to monitor them more closely, that's actually where the bulk of the good data are for, for the, the benefits of these drugs. So... You know, if you feel like you need um, help from a colleague in nephrology, I, you know, I would seek it. But I think that patients with diabetes, with hypertension, with high van um, and proteinuria and hypertension, I would use an Acer and an ARB as my first-line agent, even if they've got low GFR. Um, patients with milder proteinuria um, I, or without hypertension, you know, I guess that, that it's a little bit more, um, up to your discretion and how comfortable you feel, how adherent the patient is, how likely they're to come for follow-up if they've had problems with hyperkalemia. Um, for example, in the past, you might be more hesitant to put them on it. Um, and, and the combination of ACE inhibitors and ARBs is actually starting to fall a bit out of favor, although it was used for a while very aggressively. Um, the data to support it are not great at this point, so I certainly wouldn't push that in a patient unless you really need to for some other reason. Okay. Quick question, quick answer from the back.
1: I'm working with a largely homeless population, and when we have syphilis in our HIV-positive with low T-cells, maybe high titers, we want to treat them even though maybe we want to get them in for an LP, which all of us have said how difficult it is to access specialty services. This might be months away for them to get an LP, if not weeks, and there's a public health concern because they're out probably having sex, etc.
0: So we want to treat them. They will actually come back for those three shots, but now we've been kind of moving away from the the three shots, would that be something you might recommend and somebody that even though we still want to get them from that LP, we might recommend that, but where do we stand with that? Yeah, so
1: there's two questions really. Um, I mean, the need for the LP I think is up in the air. I mean, again, if they are asymptomatic, Um, you know, the data do support that you do a good neuro exam and that you don't have to do an LP. If you want to treat them uh, empirically for neurosyphilis, it's not three shots. It's a daily shot for two weeks or two weeks of, you know, IV penicillin. So the three shots is a shot weekly, and that's the treatment for late-latent syphilis. Um, So really, you know, you really sort of should base your treatment on the stage that you think is present in the patient. So I would not initiate presumptive therapy of neurosyphilis um, in somebody in whom I had not documented. I think that would be key. And then the other important message is if you have somebody who has early syphilis, that's primary, secondary, or early latent within the last year, you only need a single injection of benzene penicillin. You do not need the three weekly injections, and that's something that's commonly done in HIV-infected patients without supportive data. And that's, so it's painful, it's expensive, and, you know, I don't think it's necessary. There's also not that much, there's also not that much, there's also, the, I'm sorry? Yeah, so then it would be three.
0: That would be great. Okay, quick question and quick answer. Uh, Dr. Wyatt, you already
1: kind of answered my question. The use of ARB and ACE inhibitor. My patients have a lot of comorbid conditions. High blood pressure, congestive heart failure, and ACE and ARB are commonly used drugs. And for treatment of CKD and HIV, once we start them on ARB or ACE, there can be a 30% increase in the creatinine. And I, you know, what do I do? Do I take off the ARB? I send my patient to a if his, you know, EGFR goes
0: from stage three to stage four, it has happened to many of my patients, and the nephrologist took him off the ACE inhibitor. So what do I do in this situation? So, I mean, typically you should expect or you could expect as much as a 25% decline in, or increase in serum creatinine, so you asked question that way, um, and that's reasonable, um, and that's actually associated with the best, um, result, the best response um, in terms of benefit from the drugs. You know, if you see, if you have patients where they're declining to a point where they're going to need dialysis or they can't tolerate their other medications or they can't eat anything because their, you know, dietary potassium has to be so restricted, um, you know, the data in patients without biopsy proven diabetic nephropathy are not great. So, you know, I would stop it if I didn't think the patient could deal with it. But I wouldn't stop it just because there was a 20 or 25 percent increase in serum creatinine.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: Okay. Uh, Thank you both for those lectures.